Support for Focus Black Oklahoma comes from the Black Church Traditions and African American Faith Life Program at Phillips Seminary with the Tulsa Race Massacre Commemorative Art Contest online at wherefaithleads.com art. And from 108 Contemporary, announcing the exhibition My Soul Looks Back and Wonders How I Got Over, featuring artwork by Skip Hill and Letitia Huckabee, created in response to the Tulsa Race Massacre. 108contemporary.org. Focus Black Oklahoma, I'm Ariel Davis. And I'm Colby Webster. Last year, Indigenous people in Oklahoma represented more than 20% of all police shooting fatalities in the state. Much of the judicial system is reorganizing in the wake of the Supreme Court McGirt ruling, which returns jurisdiction to tribes. Allison Herrera reports the families of those who've been shot may have trouble accessing information about the incidents. Allison Griffin remembers her 28-year-old son, Julian Rose, on the day he died. Tell me he loved me. (laughs) Julian had been struggling. He needed to get his driver's license back after it had been suspended. He also hadn't seen his five-year-old son, Julius, for nearly a year and was upset after a relative had recently died of a drug overdose in Oklahoma City. The piling on of all of it left him out of sorts, a departure from his good nature. And when he told Allison he loved her that morning... He always hugged me and gave me a kiss whenever. I mean, he'd get up out of bed in the morning when I was going to work, give me a hug and a kiss. (laughs) Hours later... Julian was dead. Glenpool police shot him while responding to a 911 call at his grandmother's house a few miles away. Allison remembers getting to the scene with her younger son, Oscar Jr., and seeing her son's lifeless body uncovered as snow fell. I started screaming and I was screaming. I said, don't kill kill my baby. I said, you killed my baby. I was hollering and screaming. And the officer told me he would quiet down. The situation might seem bad enough, but this is where things get complicated. Glenpool police wouldn't talk to her about what happened, saying that because Julian was a citizen of the Muskogee Nation, the FBI would be taking over the case. The next time we see the Glenpool police, they were talking to Channel 6 News on the, t- you know, the TV. They were giving an interview, and I was like... <laughs> What's going on? You can, you said you were going to come talk to me. This is my son. <laughs> You're talking to Channel 6 News. It would be almost five months before the family heard any details from law enforcement. 
When a U.S. Supreme Court decision ruled in July that much of eastern Oklahoma was still under tribal jurisdiction, it required quick reorganization of a system that had been in place for more than 100 years. And this case exposes some of the areas where the new system is still struggling. The Rose family say there has been a lack of agency coordination between Muskogee Nation's Light Horse Police, the Federal Bureau of Investigation, the Glenpool Police Department, and the U.S. Attorney's Office, which ultimately cleared the officers who shot and killed Julian. Alex Pearl is a Chickasaw citizen and a University of Oklahoma law professor specializing in indigenous law. He says when multiple agencies are involved, the communication can depend on who is leading the office. And when you have turnover in the U.S. Attorney's Office, you know, somebody that was the head U.S. Attorney and they say, my priorities are X, Y, and Z. If Indian country is not one of those priorities, then all of the work of the prior U.S. Attorney is sort of lost, you know. Overall, police shootings in the state dropped in 2020. But shootings involving indigenous people represented a higher percentage than in previous years, according to the frontier, which tracks shootings in the state. Julian was the sixth indigenous person shot during an encounter with law enforcement in Oklahoma in 2020. All of these encounters were fatal. Autumn Rose, Julian's older sister, says her family is still in shock, and they're angry that it took federal agencies so long to tell them what happened to her brother. After last summer's racial reckoning and protests around police shootings, Autumn went to a protest at OU Medical School, where she is studying pharmacy. She had no idea her family would be in the same situation as George Floyd's just a few months earlier. We, we kneeled for that long, for that amount of time, that demonstration, and then to be there in December and to think about how that happened to my family. Autumn started an online petition calling for the Glenpool police to release all the records in her brother's case. She and her family did meet with the U.S. Attorney's Office on April 30th, nearly five months after his death. They learned that, according to the police, firefighters, and emergency medical workers on the scene, Julian stabbed one of the officers in the shoulder with a butcher knife he pulled from his pocket. Police tased Julian twice and then shot him multiple times in the legs and the chest after one officer said he lunged at them with the knife. KOSU and the Frontier filed a records request for the 911 call and the police report, but were initially told that since this case is being investigated by the FBI, a Freedom of Information Act request needed to be filed, which can be a long process. That's troubling for Katie Beth Gardner, an attorney with Reporters Committee for Freedom of the Press. Um, and, And it's very important for authorities to be transparent about what happened um, and how somebody came to be, you know, killed at the hands, allegedly, of the government. The city of Glenpool has agreed to release the information, but it hasn't yet been received. Allison Griffin also wants to see those records. I want to see the police report. It's that simple. We want the police report. We want the 911 records. The U.S. Attorney's Office did apologize for taking so long to talk to the Rose family and says in the wake of the McGirt case, they are trying to create a better process for talking to families when their loved ones die. Until then, 
Allison says she and her family will never understand what happened to Julian that night, but they'll always remember him as a loving father and someone who always wanted to help others. For Focus Black Oklahoma, I'm Allison Herrera in Glenpool, Oklahoma. North Tulsa residents will now have access to a University of Tulsa legal clinic that hopes to help residents with challenges around unemployment and housing amidst the COVID crisis. Contributor Christy Eaton brings us the story. The University of Tulsa is launching a legal clinic for North Tulsa residents. The Buck Colbert or BC Franklin Legal Clinic will build upon the university's other legal outreach efforts. This includes immigration-focused clinics and a public defender clinic. Mimi Martin is Associate Dean of Experiential Learning at TU Law School. She says the clinic's creation was driven by alumni who asked why there wasn't a clinic focusing on North Tulsa. The need became especially apparent in the last year. Not only is this a community that the legal profession has traditionally underrepresented, but the last year we know that communities of color have suffered astronomically more than other communities in terms of COVID-related legal needs like unemployment claims and foreclosures and evictions. She says that since October, the legal clinic team has been speaking with community leaders about what is needed most in the Greenwood and North Tulsa areas. What we think it's going to look like at first, at least in this moment of time, and we're still COVID-related legal services, are assistance with unemployment claims, mostly with appeals. It's not the initial filing that people have trouble with. It's getting a response or getting denied for a reason that is incorrect. Also with housing issues, including eviction prevention, as well as application for rental assistance. We would also like to assist with small business in terms of formation of small businesses. So there are a lot of people who get laid off and decide what a great time to start my own business. In the future, Martin hopes to be able to open a physical location for the clinic. In our dream world, it would be a storefront on a bus route where there is very easy access and where people can come and meet with their attorney or people can come nowadays and you know, sit in front of an iPad with a student who can't maybe be in person because of COVID-related issues. But we have the technology for folks to come in with one of us there for them to meet remotely with their student representatives. TU Law School alumnus Dwayne Midget played a key role in developing the clinic. He is on the Law School Alumni Board. He says the members wanted to leave a legacy for future students. We wanted to be a part of the commemoration. We wanted to do something that was meaningful and that could leave a legacy throughout for generations. So we agreed to form that coalition of TU Law alum and some community partners and to work on our contribution as part of the centennial commemorating the race massacre. And uh, again, TU Law Alumni Board was really excited about having this opportunity. He believes the clinic will have a tremendous impact on the local community. He says the clinic will truly embody its namesake, attorney B.C. Franklin. B.C. Franklin is the attorney that battled for the Supreme Court against a city ordinances, challenging the city ordinance, if you will, that would have rezoned Black Wall Street and much of the Greenwood community. And that ordinance would have ultimately prevented Black Tulsans, who were the victims <laughs> of the attack, from rebuilding their own community. So in many ways, 
today, North Tulsa's uh, residents of North Tulsa, if you will, still face a lot of difficulties in overcoming systematic racism, particularly in terms of housing and economic development, gentrification, education. Martin says the clinic is also looking for lawyers who are willing to volunteer their time to work with students or take on cases. Those interested in learning more can call the TU Legal Clinic's main line at 918-631-5799. For Focus, Black Oklahoma, I'm Christy Eaton in Tulsa. From their Ardmore classrooms for wearing t-shirts that read Black Lives Matter. Ardmore superintendent told the boy's mother that politics, quote, would not be allowed at school, unquote. Charles Evans Elementary School principal Denise Brunk told one of the boys to turn his shirt inside out before he was allowed to continue participating in regular school activities. The other student who attended Will Rogers Elementary School was also forced to sit out of regular school activities, such as going to recess and eating lunch in the cafeteria with fellow students. When the two boys' mother asked for the dress code policy that the boys had violated, she was referred to the school superintendent, Kim Holland. The elementary school student handbook does not include a dress code policy that makes any reference to politics. Oklahoma State Republican Representative Justin Humphrey of Lane recently compared Black Lives Matter to the Ku Klux Klan during a meeting about House Bill 1775. Representative Humphrey asked fellow Republican Representative Kevin West of Moore, quote, would you agree that when people burn, threaten, kill, intimidate, that they are a terrorist group and that Black Lives Matter meets that same description, unquote. Representative West agreed with the comparison. After facing criticism for his profane and obscene language, Representative Humphrey apologized for his language, but not for comparing the Black Lives Matter movement to the Ku Klux Klan. Earlier this month, Governor Kevin Stitt signed House Bill 1775, which limits curriculum focused on race and gender for secondary and post-secondary education institutions across Oklahoma. The bill bans schools from teaching, quote, an individual by virtue of his or her race or sex is inherently racist, sexist, or oppressive and bears responsibility for actions committed in the past by other members of the same race or sex, unquote. In addition, the bill also prohibits educators from teaching subjects that cause students, quote, discomfort, guilt, anguish, or psychological distress, unquote due to their race or sex. This legislative change occurs a few weeks ahead of the Tulsa Race Massacre Centennial. Governor Stick currently sits on the Tulsa Race Massacre Centennial Commission, but has been asked to resign by fellow commission members following this new legislation. High school students will have to pass a citizenship test in order to receive their diploma. Governor Kevin Stitt signed the bill into law earlier this month. Students will be required to answer 60 out of 100 questions correctly. The bill was authored by Republican Representative Terry O'Donnell of Catoosa. O'Donnell says the bill will make high school students less likely to participate in civil unrest. 
Oklahoma law enforcement will now have an easier time tracking Oklahomans. Senate Bill 272 will allow law enforcement to contact cell phone carriers like Sprint, Verizon, and others during emergencies to obtain the location of a cell phone. The bill's aim is to help law enforcement with kidnappings that could result in a life or death situation. Prior to this bill, cell phone carriers could choose whether or not they wanted to release their customers' information. The bill will go into effect November 1, 2021. On Monday, May 10th, Governor Kevin Stitt signed House Bill 1770, which says drivers can't use a horn at a person on a bike or an animal-drawn vehicle if no imminent danger of a collision exists. The misdemeanor status is one step towards ensuring the safety of all road users. However, it comes short of putting equal responsibility and consequence of crashes and incidents on the road to all modes of transportation. In April, Governor Stitt signed a bill making driving a vehicle through protesters free of consequence to the driver. The bill's language specified rioters could be killed without consequence without any provision or specificity as to who or what determines a rioter from a peaceful protester. The Oklahoma City City Council unanimously condemned the decades-long cover-up of the 1921 Tulsa Race Massacre as the 100th anniversary approaches. The bill was co-sponsored by James Cooper and Nikki Nice of Wards 2 and 7. The resolution states that the events of the 1921 Tulsa Race Massacre were suppressed and covered up and incorrectly termed as the Tulsa Race Riot as a means to place the blame on the black community. James Cooper says, quote, here is where the healing must begin, unquote. An operatic piece penned for the Tulsa Race Massacre Centennial will be released despite contentions with the material. The piece titled, They Still Want to Kill Us, was dropped by Tulsa Opera due to its final lines, quote, God bless America, God damn America, unquote. The format was changed to be a short film in an accompanying pocket opera that is still being developed. The film will be released in time later this month to mark the 100th anniversary of the massacre. A number of national theater and arts organizations came together after the controversy to support the piece, including Tulsa organizations, Justice for Greenwood, and Phillips Theological Seminary. Rogers State University is no longer requiring students to submit ACT and SAT scores in order to obtain admission to the university. This change is a response to the COVID-19 pandemic, as testing centers have been unavailable to students who are graduating. The policy change eliminates barriers for students who are seeking higher learning opportunities. Rogers State encourages students to submit test scores if they are available because it helps with course placement. However, they maintain that standardized test scores are not the only indicator of student success. You're listening to Focus Black Oklahoma. Oklahoma is becoming the new IT state for film production in the country. Autumn Brown has more on what's attracting the coastal film industry to middle America. Los Angeles, California is widely known and recognized when it comes to major films. But the present is in Oklahoma City, and the future could include a continued migration of film industry figures to the Sooner State. It just seems like it almost like came out of nowhere. And it seems like there were always pockets of people who were doing it, but you just never heard about it and none of the people ever connected. It's crazy now because it feels like up until five seconds ago, we were trying to figure out how to get to Hollywood. And then Hollywood was just brought to us. Now it's like all these opportunities. I mean, you can literally be a filmmaker 
and live in Oklahoma City, and that's your job, and that's just what you do. Ozzie Green-Pena is an actress, and Nicole Jocline is a film writer. Both are based in Oklahoma and members of Devoted Media Group, an independent production company in Oklahoma's film scene. Both women speak to being pioneers in the industry. First, we hear from Nicole, then Ozzie. At the time, there were other people that I saw doing, like, film stuff. But what I noticed is that they were doing it from, like, a perspective of trying to look like they were in L.A. Or trying to look like they were somewhere else, not wanting to look like where these people in Oklahoma doing film. And then I noticed that there was more, like, mixed groups, like Black, white people, just different races. So I knew... I wanted to showcase, no, we are in Oklahoma City. This is about to be all about Oklahoma City. And it's about to be all Black people. It was tough. And I think in the beginning, in the thick of it, you don't see it as tough because you're just ready to work. You're ready to create. There are so many ideas for everything. There's so many plots. There's so many visions. There's so many genres. And you don't see it as tough. But then when you put all this love work into it, and then you are trying to get it in front of people, that's when you start to realize it's tough or when you're trying to get individuals to be consistent with working with you in front of the camera, behind the camera, and you realize how tough it is because at the time, no one was really taking it serious. Where other states have one film office, Oklahoma is home to three, making the job of a producer easier when it comes to productivity. Oklahoma is an up-and-comer in the film industry due to a variety of reasons. Low cost of living, financial incentives, a crew base, and ridiculously diverse locations. Oklahoma has 12 ecoregions that range from pine tree forests and swamps to rocky plateaus and plains. Oklahoma's landscape and culture are a benefit to the film industry, says Ozzy. Oklahoma has a vast amount of land still where you can build and create these massive studios to be anything you want it to be. A filmmaker can leave a major city like Tulsa or Oklahoma City and be in rural Oklahoma in 10 minutes. In short, Oklahoma has a lot to give to the film industry, says Nicole Jocline. Knowing that you can stay in Oklahoma that's real comfortable to live, it's kind of like a best of both worlds type of thing. I can have like this comfort, this stable life, but at the same time, be creative and get paid for it. Richard Jaynes, Emmy-winning personal brand expert and founder of Hollywood-based digital agency Fanology, is co-founder of the Oklahoma Film and Television Academy. Born and raised in England and building a lucrative film career in Los Angeles, Jaynes realized after moving to Oklahoma that there was huge growth potential here. He bought an elementary school in Spencer, Oklahoma, and transformed it into a production center, Green Pastures Film School. He now has over 220 students running through various programs and has teamed up with the Cherokee Nation for various initiatives. Ozzy speaks to the importance of the economic impact the filmmaking industry is bringing to communities. Green Pasture Studios, I've attended Green Pasture Studios. It's a full-scale production studio. It provides jobs, it provides funds, not only for the individuals who want to be in front of the camera, people who are also working behind the scenes, and it also provides an opportunity for outside entertainment to find fresh faces, new people, expand, and also, you know, save a little bit of money while they do it. During the pandemic, Governor Kevin Stitt declared the motion picture and recording industries essential businesses. Film has created hundreds of jobs and brought millions of dollars into the state. 
Oklahoma's film industry will continue to build the state's influence on both the national and global stage, attracting other industries to the state. Nicole Jocelyn adds to this sentiment. The film thing is kind of like brick tech. Like we looked up and there it was, but it had been in, in play for a long time behind the scenes. And I think somewhere along the line, somebody or some people in Oklahoma decided we want Oklahoma to be a film hub. In Osage County, the Martin Scorsese film, Killers of the Flower Moon, is filming. The film is making history by chronicling one of the state's tragic chapters. Oklahoma has become the new it state for filmmaking. And I think this is just the, the very beginning of us being able to witness when Oklahoma became a film place. For Focus, Black Oklahoma, I'm Autumn Brown in Spencer, Oklahoma. As vaccinations roll out across the country, many Americans, including Oklahomans, are ready to get back to normal. One Oklahoma state representative, Maureen Turner, is not convinced that normal is the place we should aspire to, especially Oklahomans belonging to historically marginalized groups. Bracken Clark has the story. The way I am able to show up and do this work is because the folks at House District 88 propel me to do that every day. It's hard in this building and get misgendered and mansplained every day. Um, but the fact that folks continuously reach out and talk to me about the bills that they care about and show up in that full-fledged way, that gives me the strength to be able to continue to do it. That's Oklahoma State Representative Maury Turner telling me a little about their experience in the State House. When I asked what brought them here, how did they wind up in office? Representative Turner became emotional talking about the campaign their district ran. House District 88 ran a campaign that said nothing about us without us. They fought for that. And that is, that's something I'll never get over. It really kind of tugs at your heartstrings in a really important way. And I never thought that I would be the person, right? Like I said, I told myself I'd never run for office, but House District 88 wrote the playbook and then lived it. I asked what the about us issues were in their district. Turner talked about people facing food insecurity, the threat of extinction faced by black farmers in Oklahoma, and other topics faced by marginalized communities. We should be providing mental health resources, not only to our veterans, but to everybody who needs it. I think about that and the amount of people who die at the hands of our OKC and Tulsa Police Department specifically. When we talk about the highest places for police-involved killings of people, Oklahoma City and Tulsa are right there at the top. I don't want to go back to normal because normal is what got us here. I want to make sure that we are reimagining and rebuilding something that envisions all Oklahomans. And I don't have the answers. I don't have the lenses to be able to see all of those things. But I am a very intersectional person that has been my whole life. It's given me a way to be able to talk to people about what's falling through the cracks. It just takes a little human decency and courage to be able to humble yourself and talk to somebody that's other than you, which is something that a lot of my colleagues don't do, uh, whether they're in Oklahoma or colleagues across the nation. When Turner points out the danger of complacency in a going back to normal, they're talking about more than a normal promised by vaccines. They're talking about bringing this idea of rebuilding to everything, including the way we engage in politics. Turner sees a way forward, not back to normal, that centers issues and people instead of party platforms. And I see some people breaking away from that, breaking away from the groupthink. 
that's also my work to continuously engage in those conversations, try to help empower them too, which I, I never thought that I would say that. I never thought that I'd be in a position like this, not only, I don't know, empowering the kids on TikTok, but also empowering older white men in the Oklahoma legislature to understand that it's okay to bring party ranks because voting in the best interest of that small percentage of people that you don't want to hear from literally does the rest of Oklahomans a disservice. Even if we don't win that vote, folks see, and the folks in your party line will also hopefully be able to see, like, it's okay to stand up. When I think about politics, we don't have things that are as blatant in your face as Trump was doing, but we are still working to make sure that kids aren't in cages. And it's that spirit of doing what is right for Oklahomans that Representative Turner tries to live and to bring to other lawmakers. Turner wants to make sure that they show up for populations that have historically been unwelcomed and to protest alongside those populations and others that are protesting for recognition and equity. A lot of it is going to community, right? And the little things I do around the community. If I can, I try to show up for a protest. I try to show up and do community gardening because when you meet people where they are, right, in their element, people are so much more willing to talk to you about the things that they care about. Some of my colleagues across the aisle will be upset that I talked about protest uh, in liberation, but like I said before, and I'll say it again, I'll say it to the day I die, I wouldn't be able to be here if it wasn't for protest. Turner is not naive. They acknowledge that the legislature isn't always moving in the direction they want. But Turner isn't discouraged. Instead, Turner wants to continue building forward, to keep pushing against systems that don't welcome them or other marginalized communities. They are quite literally trying to undo the things that allow black people, right? They allow gender diverse people, our LGBTQ plus Americans to be able to, to even hold jobs and sit next to them until we get a government, right? Or a system in place that allows people to be able to show up fully as themselves. We actively have to not only work within it, but work against it to get that. I wouldn't be here if folks weren't standing up. I, like quite honestly. I wouldn't be able to sit in these chambers with these folks on the floor. I wouldn't be able to have these one-on-ones if folks didn't push back against a system that didn't want them there. For Focus Black Oklahoma, I'm Bracken Clark in Oklahoma City. centennial approaching, books about the 1921 Tulsa Race Massacre are finding an audience resurgence. Onika Asamoah Caesar, owner of Fulton Street Bookstore, sits down with author Jewel Parker Rose to discuss her novel, Magic City, the first novel ever published about the massacre. In this novel, Magic City, you have reimagined the city and some of the events while keeping some of the core components. Tell us about this reimagining. Oh my goodness. I actually believe that fiction can serve a greater purpose in that my job is to make you feel these people, to make you have empathy for the situations that they're in. I took this idea of rendering a world of some whites, wonderful diversity of African-Americans and making them come alive so you can see and feel 
the injustice. I also believe that sometimes reimagining or telling lies <laughs> or writing fiction, you can get at another kind of truth. What I was trying to get at was the emotional truth. What would it have been like to be a young 18-year-old Black kid in Magic City being accused of assaulting a white woman? What would it have been like to have been those soldiers who had just come home from fighting with the French in the war, only to be attacked by KKK, to be discriminated against, and how all those issues just come together and threaten white supremacy so that they had to bomb this community. I want it to be real emotionally in my and the reader's imagination. The title of this book is Magic City, and there's some history here. Tulsa used to be known as Magic City. Can you tell us a little more about this title and how it illustrates the city and the times? Well, you probably know more than I do. I had heard that Tulsa was called the Magic City. A lot of that was, I think, because of this great community, Deep Greenwood, that was the richest community at the time of color in America. And it was magical. When you see the older pictures, what was established, everything from stores to merchants to lawyers and doctors and homeownership, you know, it's just fantastic. But that key Magic City then opened up all kinds of other associations. So one of the associations for me was the time period of the spiritualism movement and of Magic City. And that then also fit back into the sense where in African-American culture, or at least in my grandmother's culture that she gave me from Georgia, was every goodbye ain't gone. So that the spirits of the elders, the ancestors are still with us. So that with spiritualism, Harry Houdini, and this thriving Black community all came together to give it the sort of like concrete realness, but also the spiritual depth of what had been accomplished by these citizens of Deep Greenwood. What are your hopes for Tulsa and its future? What do you see on the horizon as this city reckons with its history? You know, I have been to Tulsa quite a few times recently. I was so excited because I felt among the young people a new kind of energy, a reverence for culture, heritage, especially as is expressed in food, <laughs> good cooking and the music, you know. I also saw some still remaining remnants of the segregation lines, the segregation housing, and felt that that was still so unfortunate. But I felt an energy and this sense that this is a hopeful place. It can be transformed and it is being transformed. The new buildings, particularly I think whenever a city or culture pays attention to the arts, that they are really speaking about humanity and empathy and all the things that we are going to need to make social justice really, really happen. So I was super impressed. And given the fact that the only time I saw the Ku Klux Klan in my lifetime was in Tulsa, I was glad to have that memory erased and replaced by these last few years where I've seen this vibrant city rising and the work that the universities are doing, that world literature today is doing in terms of taking part in the memorial for Deep Greenwood. I think it's fantastic. So it's like a coming together and there is hope 
in the promised land on the horizon. Dr. Rhodes, it has been such a joy to speak with you. Thank you for taking the time to have this talk. Thank you. You can find this book, Magic City, at Fulton Street Books and Coffee in Tulsa, Oklahoma. You can also purchase online at FultonStreet918.com. For Focus, Black Oklahoma, I'm Onika Asamoah Caesar in Tulsa. You're listening to Focus, Black Oklahoma. Carlos Moreno spoke with Crystal Patrick about his new book, The Victory of Greenwood, and the missing and crucial conversations about the Tulsa Race Massacre. I would say probably about four or five years ago, people kept talking about, you know, the centennial is coming up. What are we going to do? What are the conversations that are going to happen around the centennial? My name is Carlos Moreno. So I moved to Tulsa in 1998. I started freelancing for the Oklahoma Eagle. It's the oldest black newspaper in Tulsa. And it's the first black daily newspaper in the country. So it's something that uh, was really, really great to kind of be working for a newspaper that had that much legacy and that much history behind it. They wanted to create kind of a special issue of the newspaper so where people could really understand about the massacre and about the history of Greenwood. I kind of didn't know at that time how valuable an experience that really was until much later. Having moved here from California, um, I really didn't know anything about Oklahoma history or Tulsa history. So I was really new to everything, including the massacre. The special issue was published in early 2003. You know, those stories and that history just never left. I've always been interested ever since then to learn more about Greenwood. So over the years, I've just been picking up every book, every article, every picture, every newspaper clipping about Greenwood and just kept collecting. But when I discovered everything that I discovered, it was like opening a treasure chest. There would be a little piece in one book and another little piece in another book. And when you put all these pieces together, you get this picture of a very rich life that this person lived. And so for me, all these people started coming alive to me in the same way that I felt when the Greenwood elders were telling me stories about this. So I got those same feelings. I sort of rediscovered what it was like to be learning about the history, just doing it in a different way, until finally there was kind of a few things that all aligned that sort of led me to, you know, people telling me I really need to write a book. I think that what really sort of hits me the hardest is the way the story is being told. I, I couldn't even watch the first episode of The Watchmen because I knew they were going to get it wrong. The current narrative we have is just completely wrong. You know, and so it just, it, it just really got to me so much that people weren't looking through the same lens that I had learned about Greenwood from and that people weren't digging into the primary documents to learn the real history. I think the thing that's kind of most missing from the conversation about Greenwood and about the centennial is that the massacre wasn't just an isolated event, that it was planned beforehand, that the city tried to prevent Greenwood from rebuilding afterwards, 
and Greenwood is still getting destroyed today by um, building all these new buildings. And it's, it's wonderful that downtown is coming back, but at what cost and at what expense and who gets to decide Greenwood's fate and its future. And I don't see it being the people of Greenwood. So these are difficult conversations that I, I don't think Tulsa's ready to have yet. one that is not new, but has been untold. G. Vickers takes us through the lives and legacies of the mothers of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., James Baldwin, and Malcolm X by exploring the biography, The Three Mothers. The Three Mothers is Anna Malika Tubbs' groundbreaking debut biography, detailing the lives of the mothers of Martin Luther King Jr., Malcolm X, and James Baldwin. This book, written originally as Tubbs' thesis for Cambridge University's PhD program, is an avenging force asserting that these men only achieved what they did through the concerted efforts of their black mothers. These women's contributions to the country and to black liberation cannot be forgotten, and to continue to do so would be, in Tubbs' eyes, to continue their generational dehumanization and a denial of their importance and agency. Tubbs writes, quote, This book acts as a site of resistance to the dehumanization Bernice Baldwin, Louise Little, and Alberta King continue to face posthumously, and to the dehumanization black women and mothers face all over our country today, end quote. The author is briefly resuscitating these women, reviving them, and probing what is left in order to make their stories known and prevent their permanent erasure. She manages to write a peacegiving book about troubling times, and it feels effortless despite the lengths she had to go in order to make this happen. If there is one message in The Three Mothers, it is that these women have value, that their stories are worth the exhaustive research it took to rediscover them, and the time it took for the writer to gift us with this detailed telling. Throughout, there is this sense of the todayness, the current nature of Tubbs' aim. She weaves in the dangers of giving birth as a black woman in America as easily as she incorporates eyewitness testimonies to lynchings in the 20th century. Both are brutal aspects explored in the work, but Tubbs doesn't focus solely on black pain. Her own connection to black motherhood, finding out that she was pregnant at the outset of this project, starts the book on the note of giving birth and the infinite joy and anxiety of this act. All three mothers were born into the same world, one where contempt for the combination of their gender and race was an accepted and widespread norm. Tubbs' tribute to them never strays from the admiration of the exceptional strength it takes not only to survive, but to navigate and attempt to thrive in this world. That surviving misogynoir was not extraordinary, but it was the expectation placed on each of her subjects, and on every black woman, made their lives all the more admirable, and at many points, all the more depressing. Repeatedly, Tubbs exposes the perceived prowess assigned black women by outsiders and the deep-seated fear of their influence within the black community as the basis of their structural oppression. A quote from an anonymous white woman calls black women, quote, the greatest menace possible to the morale of any community, end quote. Much of the three mothers is spent settling historical scores, though the writer never seems angry or vengeful. Of course, one knows she'd be more than entitled to that anger and to that spirit of vengeance. For example, lauded progressive President Teddy Roosevelt. Tubbs' matter-of-fact wry tone jumps off the page while describing a simultaneous contradictory emphasis on race purity and the reinvention of economic policies in the early 1900s. Anyone considering reading this biography 
which I highly recommend, should know that it is a well-written, shockingly honest history of what it was like to be any black woman in a colonized country. There are stories of sexual assault, forced production of children, and the lack of justice women of color must deal with in the aftermath of these crimes. It can be disturbing. It can be depressing. It is an educational, enlightening read. The Three Mothers biography addresses how black women, and in particular, black mothers, can be forgotten, not just in the ways we think about our world and ourselves, but how this forgetting is pervasive enough to prevent the writing of their stories after they have left us. The author was forced to do a deep archival dive on each of her subject's sons and, quote, pulled out the places where they mentioned their mothers or where a character was based on their moms, end quote. Tubbs approaches this reverential storying of these three black women with reality, with the material conditions in which these women lived always in her sight, writing of how achievement, the capacity to turn nothing into something and persevere in the face of overwhelming odds, came about, quote, because it has been required of us, end quote. Black women work magic, and are magic, because they have been given no other choice. For Focus, Black Oklahoma, I'm G. Vickers in Tulsa. In this final story, Sandra Slade teaches us the power of a smile. My mother has a dazzling warm smile. She never raises her voice and has the right thing to say all the time. I joke with my mom, telling her if you spread the gospel like you spread gossip, you'd save a lot more people. Which of course she never finds funny, but I do. She looks at me and smiles. I think she's forgotten that she taught me how to smile talk. A skill I cherish and use to this day. Mom, Dad, and I would make frequent trips to visit my grandfather in Shakota. During these drives, my mom would often remind my dad of his country relatives and what they were not going to get away with. Mom would remind Dad that his country relatives was going to ask to borrow money or ask him to help, and we did not have the time nor the money to lend. She even mentioned Trina, my cousin, didn't believe fat meat was greasy, which I came to understand meant didn't know how to stop from getting in trouble. On these trips, we would stop at the Piggly Wiggly in Shakota, and I couldn't wait. Pulling up, opening the door, my mom, while smiling and not moving her lips, would tell me, don't ask for nothing, don't pick up nothing, and you better not stand right next to me. My mother did all this while getting her purse and straightening her blouse. Her words seemed to bounce off the truck window or the glass of the store. However she did it, it always hit the same. I understood that I wasn't getting nothing, especially the coveted red peanut cluster patty, which melted in my mouth. But I knew that the ladies behind the counter would recognize me from my red boots and my city folk clothes that were always pressed too sharp for dust to stay in the cracks of my jeans. So I stayed close, but I would end up doing a step ball change that I had learned in ballet, just enough that they would see me, you know. My mother, however, would glance, and in that glance, I knew she was saying, I know you ain't in here showing out. The ladies, of course, would notice and would comment on how good I was at tap dance and say, come here, hon, pick out a piece of candy. My mother would sigh and say, just pick out one. My mom and the ladies would then commence to the town gossip while my dad picked up a few things. The ladies would ring us up, and my mother, doing that smile talk, as I called it, meant 
don't you dare repeat the things you hear. My mother didn't even have to bend down to me. Her smile talk bounced off the shelves and I understood. I thought her smile talk was only directed at me because I was the only one that seemed to notice it. Just like before going in someone's house, that smile talk would start. Don't be asking for nothing to eat and don't ask to go to the other rooms. All the smile talking had me confused because this was the same woman that was saying, Honey, you better say something. A closed mouth don't get fed. Well, one day in the Piggly Wiggly, I was already given the smile talk and was minding my business when I heard Cousin Z coming. You know, the type of cousin that you hear before they get there. My mom started to smile talk immediately to my dad, who was standing almost paralyzed, and he was nodding nervously. My mom is smile talking. We don't have any extra money, and if he starts in, we need to go. Cousin Z, hey, if it isn't the city folk, what y'all doing in town? As my father starts talking, and this whole time I'm watching my mom tighten her hand in his. Zeke is doing his usual loud talking and making gestures that he doesn't notice my mom's smile talking to my dad. I mean, how could he? My mom has a dazzling smile. Zeke is saying, you know, cuz, we all we got, and put his hand on my dad's shoulders. As I hear this, I knew what would happen next. My dad would shift and would reach for his wallet. I am standing there shifting in my red boots because basically I'm tired and I hadn't got my peanut patty and I'm intrigued by my mom still quietly smile talking. I decided at that moment I could do this and I could help get the message to my dad. I mean, how hard could it be? So I stood there in my red boots and plastered my biggest, brightest smile and said, you ain't all we got. We got other cousins that don't ask us for money and your daughter Trina don't know fat meat is greasy cause all she do is get in trouble. What followed was an odd silence in the store and everyone stopped to look at me. And my cousin dropped the straw from his mouth. My dad was looking out the corner of his eye at my mom. What seemed like minutes passed, the ladies behind the counter started to giggling. It was then that I realized the smile talking took practice and I, in fact, had not practiced. Everything came out crystal clear. I had forgotten that my two front teeth were out and I had a slight hearing issue. My mother hurriedly laid money on the counter and whisked me out the store, leaving my dad to deal with Cousin Zeke. Once outside, my mom bent down and asked me what in the world had gotten into me. By that time, my dad was heading to the car and Cousin Zeke was storming off in the other direction. I told her I thought I could help with the smile talking I saw her doing. My dad, hearing this, started laughing and turned to my mom and pointed at me. This little bit of country and city is going to get us in trouble. We leave, me with the red peanut patty and a smile. My mom's shaking her head and smiling at me, but not saying anything. Now I not only know how to get a mouth fed, but how to correctly smile talk. Focus Black Oklahoma is produced in partnership with KOSU Radio, Tulsa Artist Fellowship, and Tri-City Collective. Our theme music is by Moffitt Music. Focus Black Oklahoma's executive producer is Koresh Ali Lansana. Our associate producers are Bracken Klar and Nick Alexandrov. Visit us online at kosu.org and follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Focus Black OK. You can hear our program on demand for free at kosu.org. 
FBO is also available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, NPR One, and NPR.org. Please download, subscribe, and listen. Support for Focus Black Oklahoma comes from the Black Church Traditions and African American Faith Life Program at Phillips Seminary with the Tulsa Race Massacre Commemorative Art Contest online at wherefaithleads.com art. And from 108 Contemporary, announcing the exhibition My Soul Looks Back and Wonders How I Got Over, featuring artwork by Skip Hill and Letitia Huckabee, created in response to the Tulsa Race Massacre. 108contemporary.org.